Hi, everyone. I'm Nathan, the host of this podcast. And tonight, I'm honored to be joined by Miss Laura Berger. Miss Laura Berger is a senior staff attorney in the immigration unit at Brooklyn Defender Services. She works with Youth and Communities Project representing low-income immigrants in affirmative applications for immigration status and defending them in immigration court. Formerly, Laura spent three years as the staff attorney for the Immigration Justice Project at the City Bar Justice Center in New York City. There, she represented survivors of human trafficking, domestic violence, abuse, and neglect in immigration matters and advocated for them as victim witnesses with law enforcement. Hey, Laura, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you for being here. So I guess the first question we ask every guest on this podcast is, if you could have a dinner for two with any historical figure, who, who would you choose and what would you talk about? Um, so this might not be considered a historical figure as much as maybe a mythical figure, but um, I thought about this question and I would like to invite Moses to dinner and talk about what it was like meeting God. I thought that would be interesting. Um, are you yourself religious? Um, yes. I'm, I mean, I'm um, uh, somewhat religious from a Jewish background, and I've had friends um, throughout my life who uh, we have really great theological discussions. And um, of all the religious figures in, in the Bible, um, I think Moses had the most direct you know, face-to-face -face interactions with God. And so it would be interesting to hear from him himself, you know, what that was like. And um, yeah, definitely would help put some agnostic feelings to rest. <laughs> well, regardless of whether or not he was a historical or mythical creature, um, religion, in my opinion, is inseparable from history and the course it's taken. So um, moving on, I guess, um, can you tell me more about the immigration issues history, especially what we can learn from it and how to improve the situation right now? Sure. Um, so in the United States, um, when the country was first founded, immigration was very open, uh, mainly because the whole idea of like originally of settling the United States was the idea that it was empty before we got here and we needed like Europeans to come and settle the land. And obviously that's founded on a really racist belief, but um, over time um, the laws changed from being more open to allowing people to come unless they possessed certain characteristics such as mental illness or um, poverty um, and then in like in 1924, the current law, the Immigration Nationality Act was um, passed and it was a much more restrictive law where instead of allowing people to come unless they possessed a characteristic, it only allowed people to come in if they were, you know, if they qualified for a specific path. And um, I mean, the main paths to being allowed to come into the United States are um, having a family member who's already here or having some sort of skilled work uh, set up before they come. And then people who came 
you know, skirting around the edges of that law mostly have been punished by being unable to legally work, legally settle here. And over time, since 1924, the law has undergone some changes, like major revisions, but the basic bones of the law are, are the same, that it's very restrictive. That, um, it also is restrictive, like based on nationality. And that means that if someone is coming from a country that already sends a lot of immigrants to the United States, mainly countries with very large population or countries that are near nearby, like Mexico, um, there's a longer wait to legally come in. And I mean, the country that's punished the worst by that is actually India, because so many skilled workers come to the United States from India that now the wait to go from a temporary skilled worker visa to green card is over a hundred years, which obviously means no one's, no one's getting through if they apply today. Mm -hmm. Other than having things such as maybe criminal records, are there any forms of discrimination within those pools, such as with like skill set or resources? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the people who are highly prioritized in the like to come to the United States who who can get through the process the quickest are people who are willing to invest like five hundred thousand or a million dollars in the economy and and um or people who have such highly prized skills that they are famous or are at least um, very well known in their field. That's the quickest path to a citizenship in the United States. But um, people who come to work in like agriculture, obviously we need that, like those workers, there's no way to go from a, a like an agricultural worker visa to a green card. It's, it's only a temporary visa and then you're supposed to return. Mm -hmm. So, you know, having the temporary visa recognizes that we need workers in, in that category, but we aren't willing to let them stay, which is, I mean, obviously discriminatory. There's also, I mean, there's, there's like hundreds of things that prevent people from getting their green card, like um, testing positive for certain illnesses could be a, reason to deny someone a green card um someone having written down in the past or lied that they were a u.s citizen when they weren't even um like in in the u.s a lot of high schoolers in their senior year of high school are given voter registration cards just as a matter of course but if someone registers to vote and they're not eligible that can make them ineligible to become a citizen later on um commission of like number of crimes not not just severe crimes but even really minor crimes like um jumping the turnstile to go into the subway without swiping your card um, is considered theft of services and if you do it more than once that could also be like a that could have severe consequences to your immigration status mm -hmm. well having worked in this field for a while now what would you say would be an ideal way to sort of in a utopia solve this issue? Um, I mean, in my opinion, um, the, the more default open system, which as a scare tactic, as a scare tactic, it's called open borders by political opponents. But in my mind, open borders 
wouldn't mean that anyone can come for any reason without any restrictions. It would mean that people can, on the default, be allowed to enter and then only be restricted if they fall into certain exclusions, like being a threat to national security would be an obvious one. Um, And that would allow people to travel back and forth, to come when there's a need for work and leave when there's not, as opposed to the current system, which like draws borders in steel. You know what I mean? Like borders are basically a legal fiction. And I think that they should basically be abolished. (laughs) But that's a little bit, I'm going a little further than I actually believe. Mm -hmm. I guess the concern then for policymakers, and maybe perhaps that's the biggest factor that is sort of scaring a lot of people who don't understand the the issue as well is that the worry of overpopulation and not having jobs for like local citizens. Can you sort of explain why that probably wouldn't happen in this situation? Sure. Would it? Yeah. So um, in my mind, like a good test case has been the migration between the United States and Mexico over the last many decades, because until recently, there were many places along the border that were unguarded and people would come in and out pretty freely. And, um, since, um, and there have been times when the net migration from Mexico to the U.S. was higher, and there were times when it was actually the net migration was going the other way, that there were fewer people coming into um, coming from Mexico to the U.S. than leaving. And those were times usually when there was like um, a period of recession, when the economy wasn't strong. And there was no incentive for people to come to the United States because even U.S. citizens were looking for work. So why would people come here looking for work? Um, And then there were other times when our economy really needed, you know, applicants. Like right now, we have like approximately 2 million jobs going unfilled. And, um, but the problem is that our borders are so guarded. Our visas are so restricted. It's, It's actually a problem for our economy. And also like, our birth rate is actually going down just like many other westernized countries so immigration is is necessary and would bring health to our system Mm -hmm. i guess another good example of this would be the european union which some would argue has become a sort of supranational government where people can just move freely around um so i guess something like that maybe in the future would be implemented and we could see it sort of like the invisible hand in the market, but instead for the flow of people and not capital. capital. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you mentioned that many of your clients are teenagers or younger. How has that impacted you working with these age groups? And what have been your biggest takeaways from the experience? Um, well, on the one hand, um, it's it's been in some ways it's easier to represent uh, young people because there are immigration remedies that are open to young people under 21 that aren't open to older people. Um, The one I'm thinking of is called special immigrant juvenile status. And um, so I've been able to actually usher a lot of young people through the path of like, you know, getting a visa, then getting their green card, and then sometimes even a few years later getting their citizenship. Um, And it's really exciting because we can 
if we start when they're young, then we can say like, okay, you're going to have your green card by the time you graduate high school. And that's really exciting. Um, I mean, just this year, I've gotten 28 clients green cards in 2021. Um, so that's very exciting. Um, it's also like, it also can be really hard because the younger the clients are, the less likely they understand what we're doing or what's going on. And no matter how young um, a child is, they're not guaranteed a, a right to an attorney in immigration court. Whereas in the U.S., in, in criminal defense cases, the Supreme Court has guaranteed um, criminal defendants a right to a lawyer in criminal court. In immigration court, even though the penalty can be really severe, like basically being expelled from the country where they live, um, maybe to a country they haven't been in a very long time. Um, there's no right to counsel, even for a toddler. And the youngest client that I've had in immigration court uh, was only three. And like, you can't ask a three-year-old anything about their immigration case. Like, they don't know what country they were born in. They don't know their date of birth. Um, they definitely can't articulate, um, like, what their claim is before a judge. But um, not only are judges treating them like they can figure it out, they're, you know, ordering children deported without an attorney present. And that's, um, that's like, very hard to witness. Mm -hmm. Well, um, firstly, congratulations on your achievement <laughs> this year. Definitely tw that's 28 people helped. And I think that's really great because big change has to start one person at a time. And so firstly, thank you for that. And secondly, <laughs> um, why do you think that the U.S. government doesn't guarantee a right to attorney in these cases, but even with like the pettiest of criminal cases? Right. Um, I mean, it wasn't that recent that um, even in criminal cases that attorneys were guaranteed. It was, I think, the 60s, maybe the 70s. There was a Supreme Court case that allowed or that like required um, defendants in criminal cases to be um, represented. Um, so I think there's two main reasons. I think that first, because civil cases like immigration, even though they can carry really, really severe and maybe even um, life-threatening penalties, like being deported to a country where your life is at risk, um, is still considered a civil penalty as opposed to a, like your liberty is not at risk, even though you can be detained while your immigration case is going on. So that's one reason, it's just sort of like a technicality. And then the other reason I think, which is probably the real reason, is that it would be very expensive to provide counsel to all the immigrants who are in deportation proceedings, which can be like hundreds of thousands or millions. Mm -hmm. Well, when you say that um, they might be deported to, back to countries where their lives might be at risk, what sort of, in this case, separates an immigrant with a refugee seeking um, refuge from potential danger and are there differences in those proceedings? Um, well, so there's like a technical, I'll start out with the more technical definition, which is like um, someone who's a refugee is someone who's seeking to enter the U.S. and seek safety here. And usually they apply from overseas to get refugee status and be allowed to enter. But if someone manages to get to the U.S. and then is saying, like, don't deport me, I'm afraid to return, then they're seeking asylum. 
So the difference between a refugee and an asylum seeker, it's like really where you are when you apply. Um, but no, there's not really a difference in the process. If you're, if you come into the United States, either on a visa that then expires or through the border, and then you're put in deportation proceedings, um, asylum is one of the many things you can try to apply for in order to prevent yourself from being deported. And um, a lot of my clients are eligible for asylum and maybe another status like special immigrant juvenile status, or they're, they can show they're also victims of trafficking and they may be eligible for what's it called, what's called the T visa for a trafficking survivor, or maybe they have, you know, met and married someone in the United States who's a citizen and they can say like, look, don't deport me. I qualify to get a green card through my spouse. Um, the proceeding is pretty much the same. Whether someone has been in the U.S. for like 20 years or if they just entered, they still go in front of the judge and plead their case. Mm -hmm. And they don't get an attorney for free unless they're lucky enough to find a nonprofit who's willing to help them. Well, a lot of our audience, including myself, are international students who don't really have firsthand knowledge of the difficulties and oppression faced by a lot of these immigrants. Um, can you share sort of your experience with us? Sure. Um, so, I mean, the U.S., especially since um, 1996, has really um, punished or made it much harder for immigrants who come to the United States through the border as opposed to coming on a student visa, even if they then overstay their visa and live here without status. Um, like, for example, if someone enters through the border and is then um, deported and they re-enter, there's a permanent bar from them ever getting status unless they're able to get that waived in some way. Um, so um, legally, it's just much harder, even if um, someone enters through the border and marries a U.S. citizen for them to try to get a green card, it's it's a ridiculous process rather than someone who comes on a student visa marries a U.S. citizen in college or something and then wants to become a green card holder, it's much, much quicker and easier. Um, okay, politically, there's so much strength and um, animus behind these anti-immigrant policies that are really just like trying to be cruel to immigrants like oh, it's not enough to put them in deportation proceedings. They have to be detained while they do it. And it's not just enough to be detained near their families. They should be detained and then transferred to like rural Louisiana where there are no attorneys and no family. And then let's put like judges on the bench who came from ICE who have a 0% grant rate. And then let's you know, elevate those judges to the appeals court so that there's like 0% chance that anyone is ever going to get a positive outcome. Um, it just, you know, gets worse and worse. Um, and it felt like as an immigration lawyer who's been practicing since 2012, that under the Trump administration, the anti-immigrant um, animus was so strong that many people were put in positions of power whose entire goal was to make the lives of immigrants harder. Whereas under Biden, he's like more moderate, he's supposedly pro-immigrant. There's no one in office that it feels like number one goal is to make immigration better or more humane. So 
even though it took, you know, Trump maybe a week to implement the Muslim ban. And then suddenly people were landing in airports and being detained or deported who had valid visas just because of where they were coming from. Um, there's no one in Biden's administration who's like moving quickly to make things better. So it's been almost a year. There are some really bad policies that are still in place. There are some terrible judges who are still on the bench. And it just feels like this is no one's priority. Um, so in that way, it's like very frustrating because, um, you know, there are many people like me who would love to have the power to make changes to make the lives of immigrants better. But um, for people in office, it's like their 10th priority or their 20th, and it's just not politically feasible right now. Mm -hmm. um, I guess... Wait. Yeah, well, um, if there is, well, there even if there seems to be no structural change, um, how can everyday citizens sort of help immigrants or help create a more welcoming environment for these immigrants who just went through this hardship? Um, I mean, one way is is something that we've seen in the last few years is um, businesses and, and private citizens like putting in putting signs in their window like hate has no place here refugees are welcome um just like being explicitly welcoming in the face of hate um i mean also i think you know learning a new language is a way to be more welcoming like you know if, if you're in a town where the primary source like a lot of immigrants are coming from latin america learn spanish you can have a conversation with your neighbors if you're in an area that like has a lot of Somalian or Hmong immigrants, like learn learn a new language and, and you can speak with your neighbors. It's just really a good way to be welcoming. Um, but unfortunately, it's just it's hard because a lot of the concrete ways that we could make immigrants' lives better has to come from the federal government. So even people who are like trying to make things better at a state and local level sometimes. Um, Sometimes, like, there's no way to overturn policies that harm immigrants because it's just not in your power. Mm -hmm. Well, there's also for such heinous crimes such as human trafficking and domestic abuse that you also work a lot with. Why does history keep repeating itself and how can we sort of fight such problems? Well, um, I think that, you know, no matter how much as a society we criminalize things or we try to teach that they're wrong, there will always be people who, um, if they see financial gain or personal gain in exploiting others, they'll do it. And um, if they can exert their power over others, they'll do it. And so it seems like it's impossible to fully eradicate things like trafficking and abuse um that being said there are like many different policies that you know a society can take to um you know to try to limit trafficking or like help victims of trafficking in particular there's like a big discussion in the anti-trafficking movement between um totally decriminalizing sex work altogether 
um, to make it safer for people who are trafficked to like come forward and say like, this person attacked me or this person robbed me. Because right now, if you're, you know, a sex worker and you try to go to the police, you may be treated worse by the police than you are by your trafficker. So there's never any safety. Um, if the whole industry was just decriminalized and then there would maybe be, it would be easier to escape and there would be less stigma. That's the idea. And then the other idea is um, what's called the Nordic model, which would decriminalize um, sex work. So, you know, people working in prostitution wouldn't be arrested, but does maintain um, uh, criminality around buying sex. So people who try to, you know, pimp a woman or try to traffic a woman, obviously that's a crime, but also the men who try to buy sex. Okay. Men or women who try to buy sex. But let's be like, let's be honest. It's more men. Um, so um, personally, I think that the decriminalization model makes more sense because um, when even part of the whole interaction is criminalized, it drives it underground and it makes it much um, harder to seek safety or seek like medical care or escape from a situation when it's criminalized. It's like right now in New York, in most of the United States, it's totally criminalized and um, women are arrested for prostitution where men just sort of like skip away. Um, that's a big problem. Okay. Yeah. So what will happen in the future if we don't make major changes right now to improve the situation? Um, I think that it'll just keep going on like it is. Um, human trafficking is not just about sex work. It's also labor trafficking. And that's something that I saw a lot. It was actually the majority of the cases that I handled. Um, for example, someone pays a recruiter a fee to get a job in the United States because they think they're going to make enough money to pay off the fee and then still go home with a lot of money when the visa expires. But so much is deducted from their paycheck that they end up in debt to the recruiter and then having to take another job. And so that just ends up basically being debt bondage. Um, and, you know, there have been times in, at least in the U.S., where they've seen a pattern and tried to restrict that type of visa so that it's not as easy to traffic people into the United States using that type of visa. And then traffickers like can find a lawyer who will teach them how to traffic people through some other type of visa. Like religious worker visas have been abused for trafficking and seasonal worker visas have been abused for trafficking and um, like au pair visas have been abused for trafficking. Like really there's no end to the creative mind of a trafficker. Um, so think, so what we need to do is really need to think more like cohesively, um, you know, the problem is that like people are exploiting one another just to make money. So how do we reach all workers, both people who are here on visas as temporary immigrants and people who live here and try to like across the board make conditions better for workers because that's like a way to really raise you know everyone up and hopefully um impact people who are here um 
against their will. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Laura. It was fascinating to hear about the roots of the immigration issue and how the best tactic perhaps may also be the simplest one devoid of policies and such, but just free immigration within the world. However, <laughs> as you said, some may see the U.S. as taking a populist turn and support for anti-immigration policies is sort of a strong sentiment among people. And to me, it sort of begs the question of how the whole system might be improved so that we have the rights and well-being of all at as the top priority um seems to be in line with Mearsheimer realism on more of a national level where power is dictating everything and being a big supporter of the sentiment that we are all one people in this world tackling global challenges together i'd also like to see a more borderless globalized and peaceful world so taking steps to solve these major issues starts with firstly understanding them and then with action taking individuals such as yourself who help many each year. So I hope that this inspires our audience, the younger generation, like it has inspired me to do the same. So on behalf of our viewers, we're grateful for what you've done. And once again, thank you, Laura, for being on this podcast today. Thank you. Um, it's been a pleasure. Likewise, well, have a good day. You too. I hope you enjoyed this episode of History for Two. Please share this podcast with your friends and tune in for other episodes. You can also find full video episodes on the website www.history42.com.